This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On August 18, 1865, 29-year-old Lydia Smith was committed to a New York asylum. The facility was supposed to make her better. But it didn't feel that way to Lydia. She wasn't even sure she was sick. Her husband had insisted that she was, but Lydia was certain there'd been a mistake. In her memoir, she explained, I can call it nothing but a prison, but it was worse than that to me. Almost immediately upon Lydia's arrival, attendants stripped her naked. They shoved her into a scalding hot bath. Lydia tried to scramble out of the water, but her keepers held her down. She nearly passed out from the heat. After what felt like hours, the attendants yanked Lydia shivering wet and confused from the tub. Then, they confined her in a device they called a muff. The muff was like a modified straitjacket. It secured Lydia's hands and torso and could be hitched to a chair. In the muff... Lydia had no choice but to sit with her back straight, no matter how cramped or uncomfortable she got. As if that weren't bad enough, her attendants also left her in the crib, a tiny box-like structure with small holes for ventilation. Lydia's feet were fastened to the floor and her torso strapped to the back of the crib. She could barely tilt her head back when doctors forced medicine down her throat via a funnel-like wedge. Once she'd swallowed the medication, Lydia's nurses left her alone. They had other patients to see. But Lydia, still constrained within the crib, had nothing to do but wait. To distract herself from her stiffening legs, she tried to imagine her life after release. But she wasn't sure if that day would ever come. Lydia feared that this was it. She'd die in the asylum. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. 
as we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second of four episodes on mental health. For four weeks, we're looking at how the understanding of mental health conditions has changed over time. From ancient Greece to today, doctors have puzzled over how mental health conditions are caused, how they can be treated, and whether or not they can ever be cured. This week, we're looking at the asylum era of the 19th and 20th centuries, With no clear understanding of mental health, physicians were prone to believing rumors and urban legends. And when their unscientific treatments didn't help, doctors just locked their patients away. Many seeking treatment were subjected to abuse, neglect, and dangerous experimental procedures that felt more like torture. Hannah Mills was a devout Quaker She believed humanity was inherently good, and all people carried God's light within them. For that reason, she tried to treat everyone she met with kindness and compassion, and she hoped to receive the same in return. But things didn't quite work out that way for Hannah. Because on March 15, 1790, she was committed to an asylum in York, England, Unfortunately, records no longer exist of what symptoms she exhibited or whether anyone else ordered for her to be committed. Allegedly, after her husband's untimely death, she developed melancholy, a diagnosis that's roughly equivalent to modern clinical depression. Of course, depression wasn't well understood in the 18th century. Western medical knowledge of mental health was rudimentary at best. Nobody knew how emotional disorders were caused or how to treat them, which meant many physicians simply didn't bother to try. In fact, most British asylums didn't even have doctors or nurses on staff. Employees were low-skilled service professionals, and patients didn't necessarily need a diagnosis to be committed. A friend, family member, or judge could just decide that the person needed treatment. The resident didn't even have to consent. In other words, asylums were indistinguishable from prisons, places where powerless men and women could be punished for going against societal norms. In Hannah's case, that punishment included sharing her bedroom with six other patients. The York Asylum was woefully overcrowded, with nearly four times as many patients as it had been designed to house. Seven staff members, who typically had little medical training, cared for up to 200 people at a time. They simply didn't have the time or the energy to make sure every resident got proper medical care. And some caretakers wouldn't have bothered anyway. And since some people with mental health conditions were known to behave violently or erratically, the staff kept everyone restrained most of the time. For their own safety, of course. It all stemmed from the dangerous assumption that all mental health conditions were the same. 
If one person hallucinated or had delusions, all patients were discredited for likely having them too. If one person was violent, all were feared. One individual could create a stigma that affected the rest. Even worse, an urban legend at the time suggested that people with mental health conditions were incapable of feeling pain, heat, or cold. It's hard to say where this notion came from. It might be that asylums were often used to treat anyone who couldn't be cured in traditional hospitals. So people with paralysis and nerve damage lived alongside those with emotional disorders. Since some patients couldn't feel stimuli, staff acted as if none of them could. And this stigma had a more detrimental impact. For example, many asylums refused to heat their rooms or bath water to save money on gas bills. After all, if their patients couldn't feel, then they couldn't get cold. This attitude also made it easy for asylum staff to abuse their patients. If someone was too confused to follow instructions, they'd be hit or kicked. According to employees, the violent assaults didn't matter. They weren't hurting someone who couldn't feel any pain. It's debatable whether these caretakers really believed this notion. After all, they saw how patients flinched. They heard how they cried out. They had to realize that theory wasn't true. But they kept up the assaults anyway. It may be because they liked the feeling of power. After all, they were mostly underpaid, unskilled laborers. Many asylum workers were uneducated and took these jobs because they needed them, not because they were passionate about mental health care. Of course, the position didn't just give caretakers a paycheck. It gave them power over people with mental conditions who had even less social standing than they did. And they took advantage of that. Edna Martin, a woman who spent 20 years committed in an asylum, explained, the staff thought nothing of giving you a cold water bath for punishment, or they'd get a wet bath towel, put it under a cold tap, twist it, and hit you with it. Likewise, a few years after Hannah's commitment, a man named Reverend John Butterfield Shorey spent about six months at the York Asylum. When his wife Mary came to visit, she noticed that his keepers typically hit or kicked him while he was on his way in or out of the room. Once, Mary even watched a staff member kick John down the stairs. Astonished, she stared as her husband tumbled down to the ground floor. This explained the mysterious bumps and bruises all over his body she had spotted on her last visit. And that's how the staff treated John when Mary was there. We can only speculate how bad it was when he was alone. Unfortunately, he didn't get the chance to speak for himself. John passed away in the asylum on December 10, 1812. His wife maintained that he died of neglect, although the asylum denied any complicity in his untimely death. It's hard to say whether Hannah Mills had it as bad as John. Since they weren't really treating their patients, Hannah's caretakers didn't keep thorough records of her stay at the York Asylum. We don't know what medical procedures she received, if any. Her friends didn't know what was going on either. A few weeks after she was committed, Hannah sent a letter to her church requesting visitors. Like other committed people, letter writing was Hannah's only connection to the outside world. So it's no surprise that she wrote to the Quakers. 
per her request, a man named William Tuke went to the asylum to see Hannah. But he couldn't get in. Other guests entered to greet their loved ones, but the staff argued that Hannah wasn't in a suitable state to be seen by strangers. That was odd. Tuke couldn't imagine why Hannah would ask for visitors if she wasn't well enough for guests. But he put the strange situation out of mind. But at some point after his visit, he may have suspected that Hannah was in danger. In the late 1700s, asylums were highly controversial. Letters from patients, some of which were later published, revealed that they were beaten, starved, and frozen. Dr. Philippe Pinel even published a book, Treatise on Insanity, that argued the poor conditions in asylums actually made people's mental health conditions worse. He theorized that abuse and neglect, which were rampant in mental health facilities, worsened the residents' anxiety and stress. But it's also possible that Tuke didn't believe asylums were all that bad. He was a Quaker, and one of his core values was a belief that all people were innately good. It was hard to reconcile that notion with the possibility that some individuals brutally abused people with mental health conditions for no reason. And he may have trusted that once he visited Hannah, she'd confirm she was well taken care of. Except he never got the chance. On April 29, 1790, Hannah died at the York Asylum. She'd been committed less than two months. Her specific cause of death was never recorded, just like Reverend John Shorey's. At the time, asylum casualties were so common, they almost weren't worth commenting upon. During 37 years of operation, the York Asylum lost more than 300 patients under their care. And until survivors like Shorey's wife spoke up, nobody investigated the deaths. Tuke grieved, but Hannah's death also filled him with resolve. He and other devout Quakers believed they had a duty to care for all of God's children, and few needed care quite like people with mental health conditions. In March 1792, Tuke made a bold proposal to his church. The Quakers should open their own asylum. Unlike other facilities, they wouldn't neglect or abuse their patients. They'd treat them. The York Retreat opened in 1796. The head physician, Dr. Fowler, focused on humanizing his patients. He had conversations with them and encouraged them to explore their interests and hobbies. He hoped that once people with mental health conditions got in touch with their inner goodness and rationality, they'd begin the healing process. His new facility was the first to truly focus on healing rather than confinement. Patients weren't restrained. They were kept under observation, but free to roam the premises. Nobody was beaten. Nobody was doused with cold water. They simply attended talk therapy sessions and were always treated with respect. In theory, the York Retreat represented a new breakthrough in mental health treatment, a safer, more empathetic alternative to places like the York Asylum. But mental health research hadn't caught up to Fowler's ambitions. His human-centric treatment was a step in the right direction, but it wasn't enough to treat all of his patients. 
And to complicate matters, most of Fowler's theories were based on Quaker theology. It was hard for him to be taken seriously. Even among Christians, Quakerism was regarded as a fringe denomination unworthy of serious consideration. Since his practice had little scientific backing, it didn't catch on outside the Quaker community. Instead, most asylums of his era continued to abuse and neglect. Before people with mental health conditions could get the help they needed, the scientific community would have to fully abandon the asylum system. But that meant people on the outside also needed to take these abuses seriously. Luckily, an undercover reporter was about to blow the whistle. Up next, asylum abuses are exposed. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now back to the story. On April 29th, 1790, Hannah Mills died at the York Asylum. Her grieving friend, William Tuke, resolved to find a better way to treat mental health conditions. And in Hannah's honor, he helped found a facility called the York Retreat. The institution was revolutionary. It adopted a person-first ethos. Quakers believed that all human beings, regardless of class, race, or mental ability, reflected God's goodness. While other asylums at the time treated people with mental health conditions like animals, doctors at the York Retreat embraced their humanity. And their progressive talk therapy program actually worked. As one visiting physician claimed, at the retreat, they sometimes have patients brought to them frantic and in irons whom they at once release and, by mild arguments and gentle arts, reduce almost immediately to obedience and orderly behavior. The York Retreat became a model for mental health treatment, but only in the Quaker community. In 1817, the Frankfurt Retreat opened in Philadelphia. In 1821, New York's Quaker-operated Bloomington Hospital also opened their doors. The success of these hospitals proved to be a double-edged sword. 
People with mental health conditions willingly checked into the facilities. They knew the asylums that practiced Quaker-style moral treatment represented their best chance at getting help. But these hospitals were only effective when they weren't overly crowded. And soon, there wasn't enough space to go around. So, in turn, more asylums, private and public alike, opened their doors, trying to accommodate the overflow. But these complexes didn't always share the kinder, gentler vision that Dr. Fowler had pioneered at the York Retreat. From the outside, it was impossible to tell whether a particular hospital was one of the good ones. The mental health care industry wasn't regulated. Even well-meaning caretakers sometimes made dangerous mistakes. In addition, many patients never got real diagnoses. The question of whether and when they were allegedly cured was fairly arbitrary. But a few people managed to leave and were able to share the stories of life inside. Like Lydia Smith. In 1865, Lydia had plans to go to a small-town Michigan festival with her husband. While she was preparing for the party, her husband and sister-in-law drugged her, then carried her senseless to a train car. During the journey, Lydia slipped in and out of consciousness. She heard people describe her as crazy, but she didn't know why they were saying that. Lydia wasn't crazy. She hadn't seen a doctor. She didn't have any symptoms. She knew she didn't have any mental health conditions. Even worse, she couldn't speak up to defend herself. Every time she started to come to, her husband or sister-in-law would dose her with more chloroform. Then she'd sleep for hours, only to wake with the distinct sense that something was very wrong. The husband, who she was supposed to love and trust unconditionally, was drugging her. Lydia almost died of the repeated careless chloroform doses. She was bedridden for days. Later, she'd look back on the situation with fury. But at the time, she was too exhausted to feel anything at all. A doctor visited her frequently, but when Lydia tried to piece together what had happened, he didn't believe her. He claimed she was delusional. Against her will, she was taken over 600 miles away to an asylum in New York. Lydia's husband had her committed. But Lydia didn't have any symptoms or a disorder that she knew of. But that didn't matter to the nurses and doctors at her facility, who did nothing to find out more about Lydia's mental state. For years, she argued that she didn't belong there. She even tried to escape. But all these efforts earned her was a transfer to another asylum in Michigan, where her concerns still went ignored. She spent seven years committed. During that time, she rarely saw her husband and never saw her children. Finally, in February 1872, 36-year-old Lydia managed to escape. During a walk outside the grounds for exercise, she managed to slip away from an attendant and hitchhike out of town in a carriage. Ironically, nobody came looking for Lydia after her breakout. She went straight home and reunited with her husband and family, openly. If Lydia ever wondered why her caretakers were so unconcerned, she didn't speak up. It seemed like just one more instance of incompetence. For six years, she settled back into her life as a wife and mother. 
She stayed quiet about her experiences. She didn't want to lose friendships due to the stigma of her supposed mental health condition. But then, she finally found out how she'd been committed, and it had nothing to do with her mental state. Lydia had never gotten along with her sister-in-law, Sarah. And Sarah had never been shy about spreading hurtful rumors about Lydia. She'd argued that Lydia was a bad mother who abused her children. And Lydia's husband believed the lies. Rather than repair his relationship or begin divorce proceedings, he tried to make his inconvenient wife go away by having her committed. Her release coincided with Sarah's death and an end to the gossip campaign against her. Lydia revealed the entire scandal in her 1878 autobiography, Behind the Scenes or Life in an Insane Asylum. She condemned her husband and sister-in-law for conspiring against her. She blamed the asylum staff for admitting her without a proper medical examination and diagnosis. She implicated the United States government for its lack of oversight in allowing such things to happen. According to Lydia, these situations were startlingly common. She claimed that many husbands had used asylums to get rid of their unwanted spouses. So long as mental health facilities failed to diagnose their patients, the problem would persist. She ended her memoir with a call for asylum reform. The facilities needed to fund more research into how mental health conditions were caused and to implement better diagnostic procedures. But it was all too easy for the asylum staff to discredit Lydia. Who were the people going to believe? Upstanding healthcare workers? Or some woman with a documented history of mental health conditions? If someone was going to blow the whistle on asylum mistreatment and find a way to actually treat mental health conditions, they had to be unimpeachable. Somebody who could infiltrate the facilities without affecting their own credibility. Enter journalist Nellie Bly. Her real name was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, but she'd adopted a pen name when she'd embarked on her career. As a rare female reporter in a male-dominated industry, she knew she'd face harassment from misogynistic readers. Her pseudonym meant she could let her guard down when she was off the clock. Nellie had to be bold to go undercover and chase big stories, and she was. She secured a job in a sweatshop, then wrote a shocking expose on the inhumane conditions in factories. For another report, Nellie planned a trip around the globe. She was inspired by the Jules Verne novel Around the World in 80 Days, only she completed the journey in a record-breaking 72 days. In 1887, Nellie's editor at the New York World made a bold proposition— she should report from the inside of an asylum. Few people knew what really went on in these facilities, and Nellie could find out. She gladly accepted the story. It seemed like an important topic that needed to be exposed. First, she had to get committed. Nellie was surprised by how easy that was. She checked into a boarding house or low-income housing complex under a fake name. It was the best way to ensure there were always strangers around to notice her faked symptoms. She spent a few days refusing to sleep and wandering the hallways at night. Her behavior was erratic, but hardly irrefutable proof of a mental health condition. 
Nonetheless, she was arrested and brought before a judge. During her hearing, Nellie pretended to have amnesia. She claimed that she didn't have any friends or family in New York, at least none that she knew of that could help care for her. And with no better options, the judge sentenced Nellie to a stay at the notoriously brutal asylum on Blackwell's Island, just off the shores of New York City. Nellie had lied to get into the asylum, but she didn't want to take her scheme too far. After all, her safety was at stake. If she acted too volatile, she might never get released. So she resolved to act as normal as possible so that she could get the inside scoop. So when Nellie's doctors and nurses informed her that she was insane, she calmly insisted she wasn't. Nellie maintained that the judge had made a mistake in his sentencing. After all, that was the truth. But the staff only attributed her denials to delusions. Meanwhile, she experienced abuse and neglect firsthand. She was forced to take baths in freezing cold water, and the attendants were slow to provide dry clothes or towels afterward. Often, Nellie and the other patients were left wet and shivering for hours. The meals consisted of moldy or rotten food. If Nellie spoke up to ask for a fresher portion, the staff would threaten her. One employee even implied that he would sexually assault her. Worst of all, most of Nellie's fellow asylum residents told her that they'd had no symptoms of mental health conditions. No doctor had sent her there. Instead, they were largely from the outskirts of society, poor unmarried women and people who couldn't speak English. Most physicians couldn't distinguish between depression, bipolar disorder, OCD, or anxiety. All people with mental health conditions were merely, in the parlance of the time, insane. Prior to her commitment, Nellie had feared that her fellow patients would be violent or frightening. Even she hadn't been immune to the stigma against mental health conditions. But during her stay, she made friends with the other patients. It was the staff she needed to be afraid of. In fact, she started to fear that the poor conditions in the asylum would give her a mental breakdown. She wondered how many of the other patients had only developed mental health conditions after they were committed. For 10 days, Nellie dealt with humiliation, abuse, and threats. Finally, her editor notified the asylum of her real identity, and just in time, because Nellie wasn't sure how much more she could take. On his word, she was released. The asylum workers didn't want to anger a member of the media who could publicly shame them, and they probably realized they didn't have grounds to keep Nellie restrained. Once home, Nellie typed her article in a matter of days. She wanted to document her experience while it was still fresh in her mind. In October 1887, Nellie Bly published a pair of long-form articles detailing her experiences. They proved so popular and influential, two months later she repackaged them into a book, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Nellie wanted to reform the asylum industry, and she did. Her book stirred up public outrage which spurred the New York government to earmark $885,000, or about $25 million in 2020, to improve asylum conditions. 
It also reformed the commitment process to ensure only people with mental health conditions were ever checked into asylums. The bill was a step in the right direction, but it couldn't fix the entire mental health care industry. Some asylum employees really were cruel or violent, yet others were well-meaning but stretched too thin. Most facilities were grossly overcrowded, but reluctant to turn patients away. Where else could they go? Nobody knew how to fix the problem. If the doctors could treat or cure mental health conditions, they could care for their patients and send them on their way. But since nobody knew where emotional disorders came from, they didn't know what to do. Luckily, a few doctors were eager to solve the mystery. Throughout the 20th century, therapists and physicians alike made incredible breakthroughs that changed mental health treatment. Unfortunately, they didn't always understand why their remedies worked or how to apply them effectively. And sometimes, these untested, often torturous experimental treatments ended in death. Coming up, strange medical experiments behind asylum walls. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now, back to the story. In the 1800s, doctors and government officials housed people with mental health conditions in asylums. The public was starting to realize this wasn't the cure for mental health conditions, but no one knew what else to do. The medical community didn't know much about emotional disorders, and the only way to learn was through trial and error. Dr. Julius Wagner Jareg, director of Graz's psychiatric clinic in Austria, theorized that mental health conditions could be cooked out of a person's body via very high fevers. As outlandish as that theory might sound, it had some basis in fact. In 1883, there was no treatment or cure for syphilis. Infected patients simply had to let the disease run its course. That meant, at the later stages, the syphilis bacteria attacked the nervous system, sometimes leading to dementia, a mental condition that causes confusion, mood swings, and mental impairment. For this reason, many people with syphilis were locked away in asylums. One of Wagner Jareg's patients had gotten so sick, she couldn't tell reality from delusion anymore. During her stay in an asylum, she contracted erysipelas, a severe skin infection that can cause rash, swelling, blistering, and even high fevers. Strikingly, once the woman's fever broke, she proceeded to have a rational conversation with her doctors. Somehow, she hadn't just beaten erysipelas, She'd beaten dementia, too. Wagner Jorig theorized that the erysipelas-induced fever had killed the syphilis bacteria as well. 
After all, that's how fevers are supposed to work. Many viruses and bacteria die at high temperatures. Fevers are the body's way of fighting off infection. So Wagner Yarig experimented with various fever-inducing infections. He found records of patients recovering from mental health conditions after bouts of erysipelas, smallpox, and malaria. The problem was that none of these treatments was 100% effective. Ultimately, he determined that malaria had the highest success rate when fighting syphilis-induced dementia. However, malaria is a dangerous parasitic infection. It's spread by mosquitoes, and its symptoms are similar to those of the flu. A person with malaria may experience chills, headache, vomiting, and very high fevers. Today, doctors can treat malaria, but in the 1880s, the disease was often fatal. In fact, about a third of Wagner Yarig's patients died. But those odds were still better than leaving syphilis untreated. That was a guaranteed death sentence. So he began regularly injecting his subjects with blood he'd drawn from malaria patients. This part of the procedure was later named fever therapy. His treatment was widely adopted throughout the healthcare industry worldwide. It remained a favorite amongst doctors until penicillin became widespread in the 1940s. For his discovery, Wagner Yorig won the Nobel Prize in 1927, the first psychiatrist to receive the award. In spite of all the excitement around Wagner Yorig's findings, fever therapy was highly risky. Only about half of his patients responded to the treatment. The other half came out of their fevers with no change to their syphilis symptoms. And of those who did respond, their recovery was often temporary. About a quarter of Wagner Yorig's patients completely recovered, while the rest eventually developed dementia again later on. Making it worse, Wagner Yarig expanded the treatment beyond people with syphilis. He intentionally infected patients with malaria in an effort to cure all different mental health conditions, including things like anxiety and depression, which weren't caused by bacteria. There was no reason to think fever therapy would work in that situation, but he tried anyway. As a result, many people with mental health conditions ended up dying from malaria. Until Wagner Yarig could determine how emotional disorders were caused and classified, he couldn't effectively treat his patients. The problem was, he was looking for one single cure for all mental health conditions. He simply didn't consider that there might be many different disorders, which required different remedies. While he performed misguided fever therapies, people with mental health conditions suffered from these brutal experiments. Sigmund Freud first got interested in mental health care while he worked at the Vienna General Hospital in the 1870s and 1880s. He was intrigued when his peers experimented with hypnosis to treat mental health conditions. He ultimately determined that hypnosis wasn't effective, but by that point, he was fascinated by mental health care. His lifetime of study and research earned him the nickname the father of psychology. Freud was a pioneer of psychological care for nearly 40 years. His theories are too expansive for us to fully explore here, though we'll come back to some of them next episode. For now, we're going to focus on just one of his breakthroughs. 
the invention of talk therapy around 1896. Talk therapy, or psychotherapy, is a process in which a patient visits a therapist on a regular basis. They discuss their feelings or the challenges they're facing. Sometimes a person may pair these therapy sessions with medication. It's somewhat similar to the talk therapy sessions Dr. Fowler ran at the York Retreat in the 1790s, but Fowler was an outlier. Notably, before Freud established his theories, most doctors took an either-or approach to mental health conditions. Either they had a biological cause, like the syphilis bacteria, or an external one, like demons or gods. But Freud acknowledged that the mind, the body, and the external world all work together. A person might feel stress from an outside problem, like a difficult job, toxic marriage, or dysfunctional family. Then, that person might try to cope with their stress in an unhealthy way, by blaming themselves for other people's behavior or drinking excessively. Psychotherapy is about helping people acknowledge their problems and deal with them in productive rather than destructive ways. A counselor can't fix a person's financial woes or change their loved one's behaviors, but they can help a patient reframe the way they respond to those stressors. Best of all, a person could enjoy the benefits with just an hour or two of talk therapy a week. The rest of the time, they could work a day job, go out with friends, and live an ordinary life. They didn't need to be committed full-time to an asylum. Granted, Freud's theories didn't end the asylum era altogether, but his practice offered people with mental health conditions a better option than commitment. He published a series of books between 1899 and 1926, each built on the last, sometimes correcting or retracting previous findings, but all maintained that psychotherapy could help treat people with mental health conditions. His theories hit the mainstream right as the Western world began clamoring for asylum reform. In 1930, the American Psychiatric Association wanted to standardize their licensing procedures. They funded a large-scale inspection of American asylums and were horrified when the review produced report after report of overcrowding and abuse. However, there was little external pressure to improve conditions. Widespread asylum reform wouldn't arrive for at least another decade. In the 1940s, American pacifists avoided the World War II draft by working as asylum attendants. While there, they witnessed patient mistreatment firsthand and blew the whistle on the hospitals. The American Psychiatric Association's dirty little secret was becoming public knowledge. But change still didn't come yet. Reporters responded to the reports from asylum staff exposing abuse in Cleveland State Hospital in 1943. Then, in 1946, journalist Thomas Gorman visited every asylum in Oklahoma. His stories led to statewide mental health care reform, and a series of Virginia reports through the 1940s led the Eastern State Hospital superintendent to resign in disgrace. The abuses were widespread, but each expose was treated like an isolated incident. The American Psychiatric Association maintained that every violent, neglectful caretaker was an aberration. According to them, 
the asylums they operated were generally safe and humane. But by the early 1950s, they couldn't deny the problem any longer. The American Psychiatric Association passed sweeping reforms that closed most state-run mental health facilities. Patients with severe symptoms were transferred to private asylums, while the rest returned to their homes, presumably with the option of pursuing therapy. In some cases, psychotropic medications like chlorpromazine replaced round-the-clock care. Chlorpromazine, also known as Thorazine, was originally developed to treat allergies. In 1952, French surgeon Henri Laborie wanted a better way to anesthetize surgical patients. He determined that chlorpromazine helped reduce their anxiety prior to the procedure and theorized it could be incorporated into mental health treatment. By the end of the year, chlorpromazine was widely prescribed throughout Europe for various emotional disorders. But it took longer to catch on in the United States. Most American psychologists preferred talk therapy. It wasn't until the 1950s that they accepted that medication and psychotherapy weren't mutually exclusive. Chlorpromazine use became widespread globally in the 1960s. For the first time in thousands of years, people with mental health conditions were free to live their lives. They could hire therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists to help them manage their conditions. They could hold jobs, date, marry, and have children without fear their lives would be snatched away. But psychotherapy was a very new field, and there was so much to be discovered. If there was one trend in psychological research, it was that mental health conditions didn't have a one-size-fits-all cure. Some people responded to fever therapy, others to psychotherapy, and yet others to medication. Freud's theories were game-changers for some people, but the most severe conditions couldn't be fixed through conversations with a therapist. They needed more research, more treatment, more help. The problem was that too many physicians adopted an all-or-nothing attitude. They thought if a treatment helped one patient, it would help all patients, even those with completely distinct symptoms. If fever therapy cured dementia, it would be given to someone with depression. If one person responded to talk therapy, their therapist might refuse to give another patient Thorazine. There was no room for nuance. But doctors like Emil Kreppelin and Eugene Bluler changed all that. They were instrumental in identifying one of the world's most complicated mental health conditions and recognizing how it differed from other disorders. Mental health treatment changed dramatically in the 20th century, all thanks to the discovery of schizophrenia. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> ¶¶